Section 8 of The House of the White Shadows. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The House of the White Shadows by B. L. Fargen. Section 8. Book 1, Chapters 16 and 17. Chapter 16. The Conclusion of the Prosecution. In length, the case for the prosecution was concluded with an expression of regret on the part of counsel at the absence of Pauline, who might have been able to supply additional evidence, if any were needed, on the guilt of the prisoner. "'Every effort has been made,' said counsel, "'to trace and produce this woman, but when she parted from the murdered girl, no person knew whither she was directing her steps. Even the widow Joseph, the one living person besides the mysterious male visitor who was in frequent consultation with her, can furnish us with no clue. The victim of this foul and horrible crime could most likely have told us, but her lips are sealed by the murderer's hand, the murderous wretch who stands before you. It has been suggested that Pauline has met with foul play. It may be so. Otherwise, it is humanly impossible to divine the cause that would keep her from this trial. Neither have we been able to trace the man who was in her confidence, and between whom and herself a secret of a strange nature existed. In my own mind, I do not doubt that this secret related to Madeline, but whether it did do so or not cannot affect the issue of this trial. Neither can the absence of Pauline and her mysterious friend affect it. The proofs of the cruel, ruthless murder are complete and irrefragable, and nothing is wanting, not a link, in the chain of evidence to enable you to return a verdict which will deprive of the opportunity of committing further crime a wretch as infamous as ever walked the earth. He declares his innocence, if the value of that declaration is to be gauged by the tissue of falsehoods he has uttered, by his shameless effrontery and denials, by his revolting revelations of the degradation of his nature, he stands self-convicted. But it needs not that. Had he not spoken, the issue would be the same. For painful and shocking as is the spectacle, you have but to glance at him to assure yourself of his guilt. If that is not sufficient to move you unhesitatingly to your duty, cast him from your thoughts and weigh only the evidence of truth which has been laid unfolded to you. As I speak, a picture of that terrible night in the darkness of which the fearful deed was committed rises before me. I see the river's bank in a mist of shadows. I see two forms moving onward, one a monster in human shape, the other that of a child who had never wronged a fellow creature, a child whose spirit was joyous, and whose amiable disposition won every heart. It is not with her willing consent that this monster is in her company. He has followed her stealthily until he finds an opportunity to be alone with her, at a time when she is least likely to have friends near her, and in a place where she is entirely at his mercy. He forces his attentions upon her. She repulses him. She turns toward her home. He thrusts her roughly back. 
Enraged at her obstinacy, he threatens to kill her. His threats are heard by persons returning home along the river's bank, and until the sound of their footsteps has died away and they are out of hearing, he keeps his victim silent by force. Being alone with her once more, he renews his infamous suit. She still repulses him, and then commences a struggle which must have made the angels weep to witness. In vain his victim pleads, in vain she struggles. She clings to him and begs for her life in tones that might melt the stoniest heart. But this demon has no heart. He winds his handkerchief round her neck. He beats and tears her, as is proved by the bruises on her poor body. The frightful struggle ends, and the deed is accomplished, which condemns the wretch to lifelong torture in this world and to perdition in the next. Do not lose sight of this picture and of the evidence which establishes it, and let me warn you not to be diverted by sophistry or specious reasoning from the duty which you are here to perform. A most vile and horrible crime has been committed. The life of a child has been cruelly, remorselessly, wickedly sacrificed. Her blood calls for justice on her murderer, and upon you rests the solemn responsibility of not permitting the escape of a wretch whose guilt has been proven by evidence so convincing as to leave no room for doubt in the mind of any human being who reasons in accordance with facts. I cannot refrain from impressing upon you the stern necessity of allowing no other considerations than those supplied by a calm judgment to guide you in the delivery of your verdict. I should be wanting in my duty if I did not warn you that there have been cases in which the guilty have unfortunately escaped by the raising of side issues which had but the remotest bearing upon the crimes of which they stood accused. It is not by specious logic that a guilty man can be proved innocent. Innocence can only be established by facts, and the facts laid before you are fatal in the conclusion to be deduced from them. Bear these facts in mind, and do not allow your judgment to be clouded even by the highest triumphs of eloquence. I know of no greater reproach from which men of sensibility can suffer than that which proceeds me from the consciousness that, in an unguarded moment, they have allowed themselves to be turned aside from the performance of a solemn duty. May you have no cause for such a reproach. May you have no cause to lament that you have allowed your judgment to be warped by a display of passionate and fevered oratory. Let a sense of justice alone be your guide. Justice we all desire, nothing more and nothing less. The law demands it of you. Society demands it of you. The safety of your fellow citizens, the honor of young girls, of your sisters, your daughters, and others dear to you, depend upon your verdict. For if wretches like the prisoner are permitted to walk in our midst, to pursue their savage courses, to live their evil lives unchecked, life and honor are in fatal peril. The duty you have to perform is a sacred duty. 
see that you perform it righteously and conscientiously, and bear in mind that the eyes of the Eternal are upon you. This appeal, delivered with intense earnestness, produced a profound impression. In the faces of the jury was written the fate of Gautran. They looked at each other with stern resolution. Under these circumstances, when the result of the trial appeared to be a foregone conclusion, it might have been expected, the climax of interest having apparently been reached, that the rising of the advocate to speak for the defense would have attracted but slight attention. It was not so. At that moment the excitement reached a painful pitch, and every person in the court, with the exception of the jury and the judges, leaned forward with eager and absorbed expectation. CHAPTER Seventeen, THE ADVOCATE'S DEFENSE THE VERDICT He spoke in a calm and passionless voice, the clear tones of which had an effect resembling that of a current of cold air through an overheated atmosphere. The audience had been led to expect a display of fevered and passionate oratory, but neither in the advocate's speech nor in his manner of delivering it was there any fire or passion it was chiefly remarkable for earnestness and simplicity his first words were a panegyric of justice the right of dispensing which had been placed in mortal hands by a supreme power which watched its dispensation with a jealous eye he claimed for himself that the leading principle of his life, not only in his judicial but in his private career, had been a desire for justice, in small matters as well as in great, for the lowliest equally with the loftiest of human beings. Before the bar of justice, prince and peasant, the most ignorant and the most highly cultured, the meanest and the most noble in form and feature, were equal. They had been told that justice was demanded from them by law and by society. He would supply a strange omission in this appeal, and he would tell them that, primarily and before every other consideration, the prisoner it was who demanded justice from them. "'That an innocent girl has been done to death,' said the advocate, "'is most unfortunately true.' and as true that a man who inspires horror is charged with her murder. You have been told that you have but to glance at him to assure yourself of his guilt. These are lamentable words to be used in an argument of accusation. The facts that the victim was of attractive, and that the accused is of repulsive appearance, should not weigh with you, even by a hair's weight, to the prejudice of the prisoner. If it does, I call upon you to remember that justice is blind to external impressions. And moreover, if in your minds you harbor a feeling such as exists outside this court against the degraded creature who stands before you, I charge you to dismiss it. All the evidence presented to you which bears directly upon the crime is circumstantial. A murder has been committed. No person saw it committed. The last person proved to have been in the murdered girl's company is Gautran, her lover, 
as he declares himself to have been. And here I would say that I do not expect you to place the slightest credence upon the statements of this man. His unblushing, astonishing falsehoods prove that in him the moral sense is deadened, if indeed it ever existed. But his own statement that, after the manner of his brutal nature, he loved the girl, may be accepted as probable. It has been sufficiently proved that the girl had other lovers, who were passionately enamored of her. She was left to herself, deprived of the protection and counsel of a devoted woman who, unhappily, was absent at the fatal crisis in her life. She was easily persuaded and easily led. Who can divine by what influences she was surrounded, by what temptations she was beset, temptations and influences which may have brought upon her an untimely death? Gautrin was heard to say, I will kill you, I will kill you. He had threatened her before, and she lived to speak of it to her companions, and to permit him, without break or interruption in their intimacy, to continue to associate with her. What more probable than that this was one of his usual threats in his moments of passion, when he jealously believed that a rival was endeavoring to supplant him in her affections? The handkerchief found about her neck belonged to Gautrin. The gift of a handkerchief among the lower classes is not uncommon, and it is frequently worn around the neck. Easy, then, for any murderer to pull it tight during the commission of the crime. But apart from this, the handkerchief does not fix the crime of murder upon Gautrin or any other accused, for you have had it proved that the girl did not die by strangulation, but by drowning. These are bare facts, and I present them to you in bare form, without needless comment. I do not base my defense upon them, but upon what I am now about to say. If in a case of circumstantial evidence there is reasonable cause to believe that the evidence furnished is of insufficient weight to convict, and if on the other side, on the side of the accused, evidence is adduced which directly proves, according to the best judgment we are enabled to form of human action in supreme moments, as to the course it would take and the manner in which it would be displayed, that it is almost beyond the bounds of possibility and nature that the person can have committed the deed, you have no option, unless you yourselves are bent upon judicial murder, than to acquit that person, however vile his character may be, however degraded his career and antecedents. It is evidence of this description which I intend to submit to you at the conclusion of my remarks. The character of Gautrin has been exposed and laid bare in all its vileness. The minuteness of the evidence is surprising. Not the smallest detail has been overlooked or omitted to complete the picture of a ferocious, ignorant, and infamous being. Guilty, he deserves no mercy. Innocent, he is not to be condemned because he is vile. In the world's history, 
there are records of countries and times in which it was the brutal fashion to bring four-footed animals to the bar of justice there solemnly to try them for witchcraft and evil deeds and you will find upon examination of those records of man's incredible folly and ignorance that occasionally even these beasts of the earth pigs and such like have been declared innocent of the crimes of which they have been charged i asked no more for gautran than the principal involved in these trials judge him if you will as you would an animal but judge him in accordance with the principles of justice which neither extenuates nor maliciously and unreasonably condemns the single accusation of the murder of madeline a flower girl is the point to be determined and you must not travel beyond it to other crimes and other misdeeds of which gautran may have been guilty it has been proved that the prisoner is possessed of great strength that he is violent in his actions uncontrollable in his passions and fond of inflicting pain and prolonging it he has not a redeeming feature in his coarse animal nature thwarted he makes the person who thwarts him suffer without mercy an appeal to his humanity would be useless he has no humanity when crossed he has been seen to behave like a wild beast all this is in evidence and has been strongly dwelt upon as proof of guilt most important is this evidence and i charge you not for one moment to lose sight of it i come now to the depiction of the murdered girl as it has been presented to you pretty admired gentle in her manners and poor although the fact of a person being poor is no proof of morality we may accept it in this instance as a proof of the girl's virtue she was fond of life her disposition was a happy one she was in the habit of singing to herself thus we have the presentment of a young girl whose nature was joyous and to whom life was sweet another important piece of evidence must be borne in mind she possessed strength greater strength than would have been supposed in a form so slight this strength she would use to protect herself from injury it has been proved that she used it successfully to protect herself from insult in the whole of this case nothing has been more forcibly insisted upon than that she resisted her murder and that there was a long and horrible struggle in which she received many injuries wounds bruises and scratches and in which her clothes were rent and torn this struggle and the natural order of things could not have been a silent one accompanying the conflict there must have been outcries frenzied appeals for mercy screams of terror and anguish no witness has been called who heard such sounds and therefore it must be a fact that the murder must have been committed some time after gautran's threat i will kill you i will kill you was heard by persons who passed along the bank of the river in the darkness of that fatal night time enough for gautran to have left her time enough for another lover or stranger to meet her 
time enough for murder by another hand than that of the prisoner who stands charged with the commission of the crime. I assert, with all the force of my experience of human nature, that it is impossible that Gautrin could have committed the deed. There was a long and terrible struggle, a struggle in which the murdered girl's clothes were torn, in which her face, her hands, her arms, her neck, her sides were bruised and wounded in a hundred cruel ways. Can you for one moment entertain the belief that, in this desperate fight in which two persons were engaged, only one should bear the marks of a contest so horrible? If you bring yourselves to this belief, it must be by the aid of prejudice, not of reason. Attend to what follows. On the very morning after the murder, within four hours of the body being discovered in the river, Gautran was arrested. He wore the same clothes he had worn for months past, the only clothes he possessed. In these clothes there was not a rent or tear, nor any indication of a recent rent having been mended. How, then, could this man have been engaged in a violent and prolonged hand-to-hand -hand conflict? It is manifestly impossible, opposed to all reasonable conjecture, that his garments could have escaped some injury, however slight, at the hands of a girl to whom life was very sweet, who was strong and capable of resistance, and who saw before her the shadow of an awful fate. Picture to yourselves this struggle already so vividly painted, so graphically portrayed. The unhappy girl clung to her destroyer. She clutched his dress, his hands, his body in her wild despair, a despair which inspired her with strength beyond her ordinary capacity. And of still greater weight is the fact that there was not to be found on any part of Gautran's body a scratch, a wound, or a bruise of any description. What, then, becomes of the evidence of a terrible life and death struggle in which it is said he was engaged? Upon this point alone the entire theory of the prosecution breaks down. The absence from Gautran's clothes and person of any mark or identification of a physical contest is the strongest testimony of his innocence of this ruthless diabolical crime and wretched and degraded as is the spectacle he presents justice demands from you his acquittal still one other proof of his innocence remains to be spoken of i will touch upon it lightly but it bears a very strange aspect as though the prosecution were fearful that its introduction would fatally injure their case when gautran was searched a knife was found upon him the knife, without doubt, with which he inflicted upon the face of a comrade a wound which he will bear to the grave. Throughout the whole of the evidence of the prosecution I waited and looked for the production of that knife. I expected to see upon it a blood proof of guilt. But it was not produced. No mention has been made of it. Why? because there is upon its blade no mark of blood. 
do you believe that a ruffian like gautran would have refrained from using his knife upon the body of his victim to shorten the terrible struggle even in light quarrels men in his condition of life threaten freely with their knives and use them recklessly to suppose that with so swift and sure a means at hand to put an end to a horrible affair gautran in the heat and fury of the time refrained from availing himself to it is to suppose a thing contrary and opposed to reason remember the answer given by one of the witnesses who knows the nature of the man well when i asked him whether in his passionate moods gautran would be likely to show coolness or cunning he would have no time to think he would be carried away by his passion his is the nature of a brute governed by brute laws you are here to try not the prisoner's general character not his repulsive appearance not his brutish nature but a charge of murder of which he is accused and of which in the clear light of human motive and action it is impossible he can be guilty the advocate's speech of which this is but a brief and imperfect summary occupied seven hours and was delivered throughout with a cold impressive earnestness and with an absence of passion which gradually and effectually turned the current which had set so fatally against the prisoner the disgust and abhorrence he inspired were in no wise modified but the advocate had instilled into the minds of his auditors the strongest doubts of gautran's guilt two witnesses were called one a surgeon of eminence the other a nurse in a hospital they deposed that there were no marks of an encounter upon the prisoner's person that upon his skin was no abrasion that his clothes exhibited no traces of recent tear or repair and that it was scarcely possible he could have been engaged in a violent personal struggle upon the conclusion of this evidence which cross-examination did not shake the jury asked that gautran should be examined by independent experts this was done by thoroughly qualified men whose evidence strengthened that of the witnesses for the defense the jury asked also that the knife found upon gautran should be produced it was brought into court and carefully examined and it was found that its blade was entirely free from bloodstain the jury astounded at the turn the affair had taken listened attentively to the speech of the judge who dwelt with great care upon every feature of the case the court sat late to give its decision and when the verdict was pronounced gautran was a free man free to enjoy the sunlight and the seasons as they passed free to continue his life of crime and shame free to murder again end of section 8 end of book 1